coming up on the Chazzy Cast. I mean, her power politically is unparalleled in a lot of ways. Chassis lead researcher Chelsea Klassen talks about the surprisingly academic folklore of being a Swifty. Looking at celebrity and controversy, how do we conceptualize the controversy that happened with the VMAs? How do we understand heroes and villains in popular culture? How do we talk about race? It's something sweeter than fiction in this episode of the Chassis Cast. From UFE's Community Health and Social Innovation Hub, this is the Chassis Cast, a program dedicated to bringing experts and insights to the issues that shape our lives, because words have to matter. Now, here's your host, Dr. Martha Dow. So it's my pleasure uh, today to, on our Chassis Cast to have Chelsea Klassen. And uh, Chelsea, I have the good fortune of working with you uh, in Chassis as you're the lead researcher there. So it's such a privilege. And obviously, you also teach in our Global Development uh, Studies program. Um, welcome. Thank you. And I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about you know yourself, your journey, what you do here at UFE. That would be great. Yeah, I'd love to. So I started my journey at UFE in fall 2011. I had graduated high school and came to university and really didn't know exactly what I wanted to study, but I knew I wanted to do some higher learning. So I did a semester and I saw my friends going off and doing some traveling and getting, you know, experiences outside of Abbotsford. And so I thought I wanted to maybe get some more experiences. So I did a bit of traveling and then I decided I wanted to come back and um, do um, some more classes. And I found myself in your sociology 101 class, Martha, and that class transformed my life. Um, I got to see the world in a way that exposed so many of the things you kind I kind of knew or saw, but didn't have words or language for. So that's what I think, you know, your delivery of the material as well as just learning about, you know, different perspectives in sociology really changed me. So I, um, I ended up doing a minor in sociology, but I also took a class, um, GDS 100, Global Development Studies 100. And I, I love that I can use the global perspective um, with the sociological lens. So I like to combine the two. So I decided to major in Global Development Studies and I actually finished with my um, two-year associate in um, Global Development, or in, in, I think it was International Development at the time. And went to Afghanistan for four months in 2017. That was another transformative moment in my professional um, uh, or in my career, I guess, where I, I, I guess I had a perspective shift on what development should and shouldn't look like. And so I met um, an amazing doctor there who had been working in the country for a number of years. And I feel very blessed that she was able to show me a really amazing example of how to do international development well, because it can be done wrong in a lot of ways, as you know, many different disciplines can be used in different ways. Um, and she suggested I do my master's program at the University of Sussex. So she said, her and her husband, she said, if we ever went back to school, this is where we would study. And I thought, I really respect these people. So I think I should take this advice and maybe explore this. So I came back, I had had my two year degrees. I came back to UFE, finished my bachelor's in global development studies and a minor in sociology and Latin American studies. And yeah, in my upper levels, I had the privilege of doing, you know, I think your pol public policy course, Martha, and a number of other courses that helped 
shape, um, yeah, my experiences. And then, yeah, went, uh, got into a program, worked in um, Laos for six months at the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, working in alternative development, which was, you know, another kind of shift where I saw both the opportunities that large scale institutions like the UN um, can provide for international development professionals, but also some of the constraints and um, inefficiencies in large systems. So that was a really amazing learning opportunity as well. Then I went back to Afghanistan one more time and got to teach um, ice skating with an organization called Free to Run. And that was another amazing moment kind of in my professional journey where I really love using sports and activities and seeing women empowered um, through sports. And not like not empowered, because I have a problem with that word and I could go on about this maybe in a, in a minute, but um, women, yeah, maybe we'll come back to empowerment. But um, I saw that that um, opportunities that sports provides. And so I thought I really would like to do my master's work in, in women's sports. So we all know what happened in March, 2020. Um, I thought, you know what, I want to do my master's. And I think this is a good time because, um, you know, everything was kind of in upheaval, but I knew that I could still study. That was one thing that was um, kind of a, still there. Depend, you know, the modality was still unsure. I ended up doing my whole master's online, but yeah, I did my master's in international development, um, or I think technically it's development studies at University of Sussex at the Institute of Development Studies. So I got to do my master's research um, on women's sports in Afghanistan. And I uh, did my interviews um, through Zoom because for multiple reasons, I couldn't travel <laughs> at the time because of COVID as well as um, the security issues with Afghanistan. But um, I found some really interesting findings from that research where I kind of created a model that was called the aspirational cycle or aspiration cycle where I saw the effects of one woman being visible um, in Afghanistan in a in an athletic pursuit and that really having um, resounding effects for other women. So having that visibility um, and as, of course, as we all know now, women are not able to go out freely in public. So the impacts of all my findings, um, you know, it only highlights how important it is. Um, it was really cool hearing from the women that I spoke to, like even some participants mentioned other participants that had inspired them. So it's a small community of women, but it's also a very strong community. And so, um, yeah, I finished my master's research in July of 2021, August, 2021 hits where the Taliban, um, the Taliban take over. And I was supposed to submit my, my, uh, they call it the dis your thesis, your dissertation in the UK. So I was supposed to submit, you know, basically my final paper. And I, I tell this story because I want students to feel comfortable that they need to take care of themselves. So at that time, of course, I was not in danger myself, but many of my participants were reaching out to me. Many of my friends from Afghanistan were reaching out to me. And so I really had to make sure that I was trying to support them as best I could, um, with whatever I could provide, which was limited at the time. And of course, Canada has played a role in Afghanistan. So there was a lot of expectation around what response might look like. And, and we were at an election cycle at that time as well. So unfortunately, um, international diplomacy was used as a bit of a tool in some ways to, uh, um, you know, basically Justin Trudeau had 
had announced that he was going to be taking Afghan refugees to Canada, which many people knew I was Canadian. So that just meant a lot of people were reaching out to me. So for obvious, like, obviously they were because they wanted an opportunity to come somewhere safe. And so, yeah, that was, um, I ended up extending my submission just because I was trying to emotionally manage because, uh, master's is, you know, can be stressful enough, um, on its own, but then I had this added layer of like wanting to support people. So, yeah, I just, yeah, I just think students need to be mindful of like, you need to gauge <laughs> extenuating circumstances and know what, what's important to deal with at a time. So I guess that's a little bit about my background. And now after finishing my master's and throughout, I was throughout my master's, um, as well as after Laos, I was working as a research assistant at Chassis, um, as you know, because I'd graduated from UFE. So I was able to work on some really interesting projects looking at COVID and then um, I came back as, uh, yeah, the a research assistant and senior researcher and then, or senior research assistant <laughs> and now lead researcher. Um, and so I've worked on a number of different projects um, and my, you know, a big one that I worked on that stands out to me that I can highlight is the flood report. So working with the team um, and working alongside Archway, we helped um, develop a report that looked at the social impacts of the flood. So yeah. And then I also teach sessionally at the university. Um, so I teach mostly introduction to global development studies. And then last summer I had the opportunity or this past summer, I had the opportunity to teach a class on Afghanistan. So yeah, that's my long introduction. <laughs> no, that's amazing. It just reminds me that we have to, at some point, just have a conversation on Chassis Cast about your work in Afghanistan and, and where that all stands, um, because I learned something new from you all the time. So, And thank you, certainly, for your very generous uh, attribution around some of our courses, and it's such a pleasure to have you, uh, obviously, uh, in Chassis every day. So that brings us to what we're here to talk about today, which is so interesting. And I love the introduction you just did, because I think it's also this interesting connection uh, to Taylor Swift, right? So could you tell us what brought you to Taylor Swift? Um, and and then I've got some questions. We've talked lots in Chassis about all of this. Uh, students have engaged. So yeah, let's start there. Sure. So when I was in late middle school or early high school, I remember seeing Taylor Swift's music video, Teardrops on My Guitar, which is from her debut, um, her debut album. And that was such a, um, yeah, just a beautiful music video. Um, and just the fact that she wrote all her own music as like a, I, probably I was 14 or 15 at the time, maybe even younger, seeing that, um, yeah, I think I was 13. Yeah. So seeing that was like, wow, that's really cool. She's like a teenager like me and she's able to write this music, her own music and tell a story. Right. So that story is about um, a girl who's in love with a boy and her, he's her friend and he doesn't, you know, know she's alive kind of thing, doesn't recognize that she's like pining after him, um, which is a relatable story to a lot of um you know, girls at that age. So I remember that was kind of my first like visual, like, oh my goodness, this is such a cool song and cool story. Um, and she also, the other thing that, that kind of invited you in was she like named the guy, his name was Drew. And so of course the poor guys in our high school who were named Drew would always get us singing that song to him. But you know, the, the like, oh, this is like, she's personalizing this. Like she's making it like 
about somebody in her life, you kind of know like who that person is, was really intriguing. So that's just a, I think she was just foreshadowing, um, you know, how she'll, yeah, how she's connected so well to her audiences. Um, so that was kind of the first introduction I would say to, to Taylor. So yeah. So then it grows because as we're sitting here and I'm looking at your t-shirt yeah. with Taylor Swift yeah. and other sorts of uh, memorabilia on the, on the, so then it obviously grows. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I also at the time really enjoyed writing songs. So obviously I took so much inspiration from her. Um, so my parents bought me a guitar. I even had a chance to like work at a recording studio in Abbotsford and make some, like write some songs and record some songs. Um, so seeing, you know, that was an example, um, that I drew from her. So her next album after debut was fearless, which, um, is where she got more widespread popularity. So debut was primarily played on like country radio. So that's another thing we could, we could, I mean, I could talk about her forever, but the country to kind of pop crossover. So that's where fearless started having more pop airplay. Um, although, you know, debut did as well. So that's her first headlining tour. So I got to see that in Seattle. I think I was 15. I went with some friends from high school and, um, yeah, like even at that tour, her dad was like riding around on his Segway, like handing out guitar picks. So just that, like, and she talks about this and, you know, you probably saw she was recently named times person of the year for 2023. Like she calls it a small family business. So that really, like, if you're playing a stadium tour, and you have somebody's parent walking around, obviously he was probably so proud of her and wanted to connect with fans that way, but that's like super memorable. Like I can't think of really any other, you know, celebrity who's, who's maybe family at the level that she is, is just so engaged with the fans as well. So that, that's really um, inviting. And then of course we, you know, we all saw the Kanye, you know, 2008 VMA award, um, upstaging. So that also, you know, that made you feel really compassionate for her and highlighted a lot of the gendered issues that she was facing and has subsequently faced in the, you know, the next, like whatever, 15 ish years of her career. So yeah, that all happened while I was still in high school. So yeah. Interesting. Well, and as soon as you start talking about gender, right? So, I mean, I, I'm thinking sociologically, and I know we've talked. So, so what, I mean, I know one of the things you're interested in is thinking from a course point of view. There've been a, it sounds like there've been a few courses that have already been delivered. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, lots of people still want to trivialize who she is, what she does. I mean, I don't, from an economic point of view, it's just yeah. crazy. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the the gendered component, um, I've heard multiple sides to that, right? So some people will say a lot of her strength obviously comes from the fact that she's a woman. She taps into a fan base that, you know, was previously untapped. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that a lot of her success comes from that. But then there's also the side of gender where she's faced, you know, she's had a a sexual assault case go through where she sued for $1 um, and actually one and it was a symbolic um case and and if you watch her document documentary Miss Americana you really see that she that's a turning point in her career where she really she starts to become more politically vocal um so that intersection of the gender and the political is huge um 
So I'll read this quote from Times, which says, maybe this is the real Taylor Swift effect, that she gives people, many of whom are women, particularly girls, she makes their interior lives matter. So at least I felt that as, as a fan, um, and I know my friends as well. Like another quote from the article talks about how, you know, she she's so personal, and I alluded to that, right? But it's not, when you listen to the music, you don't, necessarily think about what she's experienced at the time you're able to, um, connect it to what happened to you. So like, I know my friends and I, we always talk about like, you know, she has a very popular song called all too well. That wasn't a, a radio success, um, or single from her red album, but was, uh, you know, has gone on to now win um, I think a Grammy award, um, for music, um, video or short film, um, that she's re-released, right? So the re-release of her music. Um, but that, that song has so much meaning for people. And we all are, my friends and I will be like, who's your all too well song. Um, or, you know, who's the person you think of when you hear that song. So we, we know who she, you know, or there's a, there's speculation as to who she wrote that song about, but I think that, making the interior lives of women matter. Um, and then talking about the economic perspective, I mean, Swift says in the article, if we have to speak stereotypically about the feminine and the masculine, women have been fed the message that we naturally gravitate towards girlhood, feelings, love, breakups, analyzing those feelings, talking about them nonstop, glitter and sequins. We've been taught that those things are more frivolous than the things that stereotypically gendered men gravitate toward. And she says, so actually, if we're going to look at this in the most cynical way possible, feminine ideas becoming lucrative means that more female art will be getting made. So, you know, she's tapped into such a cultural moment, I think, in such a successful way economically. So, yeah. Interesting. So what would that course look like? Yeah. So I've been working on an outline and it's it's hard to put... (laughs) everything in someone's almost 20 year or more career, um, into like a, you know, a course. But what I've thought about looking at is, you know, going through her albums, um, talking about adolescence and privilege too, right? Many people will talk about how, you know, while she was not perhaps uber wealthy, she did come from privilege, right? So she, even in the article alludes to it as a, you know, her family as being in, involved as a small family business. So both her parents come from a marketing and, and, and financial background, right? So it's hard to imagine her having the success she has without that support of her family as well, um, in terms of driving kind of the, the engine or the machine of her, of her brand. Um, also looking at feminism, sorry, feminism in country music. So, you know, she was able to do the successful pop country crossover like Shania was before her, but, um, she also has been exposed to some of the issues that happen when with women in country music, right? So we have the Dixie chicks situation or the chicks as they're now called, um, issue where they, they talked about George Bush and that was not well received by, um, the country music, um, you know, fans and, and radio. Right. So she was, I think that was a huge hesitation for her to get more political. So we'll talk a little bit about, you know, Dolly Parton's role in her writing as well as other artists too. Looking at celebrity and controversy, how do we conceptualize the controversy that happened with the VMAs? Because there's different perspectives. There's different, um, you know, how do we understand heroes and villains in popular culture? How do we talk about race, right? How do we talk about age? 
Um, how do we naturally gravitate towards like villains and, and heroes in popular culture? Gender, as we've talked about in celebrity, right? So double standards. Um, and, you know, how is this shaped by societal expectations? Um, another thing we I would like to dive into as students is sexuality and celebrity. So for Taylor Swift, there has been um, a lot of speculation, so much so that there's a whole genre of fans that um, embrace the gay lore, as it's called, and talk about, about her and, and speculate on her sexuality, right? So looking at different factions of the fandom and, and her roots, right? So her country roots and how how that plays a role as well. Can I ask you just on yeah. that, the sexuality piece? It's interesting. So did she foster that? Does she have a, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And again, like I'm speculating here as a fan and as a, you know, <laughs> who's someone who's just studied a bit of sociology, but there's a couple songs that's, that have, I think, you know, um, LGBTQ overtones. She also came out with a song called You Need to Calm Down, where at the end she has a message um, in support of GLAAD. Um, she has lyrics in there that allude to GLAAD. So I think, you know, her music has expressed support. Again, people, there's, there's critiques and things of how she goes about it, but even her song Lavender Haze, right? I mean, we've talked about that in, in or in Chassis, just that that is coded with, um, you know, LGBTQ plus, um, kind of history that, you know, you would be better to speak to, but that, um, but I think it's, it's interesting, um, with her 1989 re-release that she just, um, released in late October, she did actually have a comment about how people even sexualized her female friends. So she realized that there was so much critique on her with, with, um, going out with different, different men. And so she decided to surround herself with female friends to try to combat, um, kind of some of those critiques in a way or try to lessen them. And then she, she did make a comment about how this era of her, of her career, um, was even sexualized. So again, that, that, that could, that could still mean that there's truth to some of the Gaylor theories, but it also is her kind of stating like, you know, I, I think she's not really ever going to to maybe tell um, everything because she doesn't do that with any any type of relationship she's in. So I don't know if that makes sense. But. It does. And I just a uh, quick and then I know I'm sure there's it sounds so interesting. I'd love to be honest, I'd love to take your course. <laughs> um, but so she has her songs. Mm -hmm. Is she also out politically in other ways. Yeah. So she is quite supportive of democratic candidates in Tennessee, which is, I, I believe her kind of state of voting, I would imagine. Um, I know she has multiple homes, so I can't say for sure, but, um, yeah, like when she released that voter registration, um, opened, they saw, I think, I think this year it was about 35,000 people registered more so than they expected or something along those lines. So, I mean, her, her power politically is, is unparalleled in a lot of ways. Um, I know she, you know, if you watch Miss Americana, there's a, there's quite a heartbreaking scene where her family and managers are trying to avoid, like trying to tell her not to speak out, um, on the side of Democrats for fear of her safety. Um, but then she actually lists the different bills and things that the Republicans in that state are supportive. And one of them is, I, I, I'm going to get the exact title wrong, but something around supporting women who are, who are being stalked or who are being harassed. Um, 
And she, she says to, to her managers and her family, like, I'm a victim of this. Like I have stalkers. I've had, you know, harassment happen to me. And so, um, yeah, like she, that's the, I think that was maybe a turning point for her where she started to become more active politically. Um, and then, I mean, if we're talking about political, we can't in the U S particularly not talk about the economic. Um, so her, the Super Bowl games that she's attending now that she's been linked with Travis Kelsey have seen the highest rating since the Super Bowl, right? Like she's made something that is, you know, perhaps at the pinnacle or top of American popular culture, even more popular somehow. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, and, and, you know, she brought more, she opened her heiress tour in Glendale, which had the Super Bowl and she brought in more economic traffic than the Super Bowl itself, which is like, for America, I feel like saying quite a lot. So, yeah. And yet still so much resistance. But before we get to that, because I thought that's a nice place for you to ha um, have some comment as well. I think it's interesting what you just said. So in the discussion about stalking and harassment and legislation, she's seen herself in other people's stories. And that's kind of what you talked about, what many fans gravitate to her because they see mm -hmm. themselves in the storytelling. So it feels like there's some reciprocity and I don't know, I haven't been to a concert. I don't lose. So, you know, you're the expert, but it feels relational in an interesting way. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, for myself, having been a fan of her since I was, you know, in middle school, we've also grown up together. So it, it, I, it's like I have a soundtrack for each era, era of my life, which feels really cool. And going through those, like, you know, she literally released the song 15 when I turned 15. So it's like when you're learning to drive and you go on your first date and kind of, you know, milestones that happen in those few years. Um, and she's, you know, she knows that fans, for example, like fought, not physically, but with technology to try to get tickets. So in the Times article, she talks about how she knew how hard fans had worked to get those tickets. So she was going to work just as hard so that when people walked away, they were like, from the concert, they were like, oh my gosh, like that was worth every, every moment. So you feel that she puts care into everything she does for her fans. And that she, I think she's a perfectionist. I think that she's, um, she's, she cares so much about what fans, what fans need and what they want. And so, yeah, you really feel that as a fan that it's not when she's experimenting or, you know, cause she's, she's shape shift genres so much. She's gone from country to pop to more, you know, reputation would be considered pop, but it's, it's gr like grittier than she has folklore and evermore, which are much more indie. Um, and somehow she's m managed to bring fan, like more, like, like add fans. Like, I don't know many artists who can shape shift like that and not loot, like lose some fans along the way. So she's, I would argue she's not only like bringing fans with her, but she's kind of changing the face of popular music. Um, and we're, you know, we're willingly going along with it. Like we're, I, I think everyone's quite excited to see what's going to happen next. She, with this re-release um, of her music and just like the one minute version on that, like her music, her masters. Um, so her original six albums were owned by um, the masters were owned by her record label, which got sold to Scooter Braun. Um, and there's, um, you know, 
some bad blood between those two. And so, um, she has decided to, uh, re-record her music because her contract allowed her to do that. And of course, fan, you know, she, Kelly Clarkson actually sparked that tweeted, tweeted Taylor. And it's very sweet because Taylor, every time she releases a re-record, she sends Kelly Clarkson some flowers, but all that to say is that fans will follow and listen to these re-records now because she's releasing vault tracks. She's releasing, you know, she's looking, she's introspective looking back or retrospective, I guess, looking back on her career. And so, um, she just keeps, keeps, you know, doing and giving so much to the fans about these, these vault tracks that were never before heard. And some of the songs you're like, how did you not release this song? It's a classic hit, but, um, yeah, it's very, it's, 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 she's keeping us on our toes always. And that's so like, as a fan, it's so engaging to have that, um, that relationship with her. Yeah. <laughs> I interrupted you in terms no, of, okay. is there anything else that, uh, sort of you think about the course? And then I thought in the, in the little bit of time we have left, I'd love to ask you a bit about so much resistance. Yeah, sure. Just a couple more things. I mean, I think, in her documentary, Miss Americana, she talks about, um, like some mental health stuff. She talks about, um, you know, some, um, eating disorder types of things. And I think for many people, that was also a relatable, a relatable point where you're like, Oh, like you're so famous and popular and beautiful. And you still have some of the same struggles that people have, um, you know, or, you know, and it affects both genders, but it often affects women. Um, and so, yeah, she even in a song uh, of her rec most recent album, Midnight's talks about how she like starved her body, had parties, was just trying to get people's, you know, love and adoration. But at the end, the, the song's called you're on your own kid. And that's actually become, you know, a, a very fan favorite song. Um, and so that one, I think, um, we'll, we'll talk a bit about like health and well being and how she, you know, she's also has a few other songs. Um, soon you'll get better, which is a song, um, she wrote about her mom's bout with cancer. Um, she wrote a song called epiphany, which looks at people's experiences of COVID and alluding them to kind of some experiences during war. So she talks about doctors, um, Bigger Than The Whole Sky is another song that she wrote that um, hasn't been confirmed that it's about this, but if you read the lyrics, could be about a miscarriage. And then she has a couple other songs about um, other things that, like suicide and things like that. So again, all it's not explicit, it's, it's coded, but I don't know how you write such popular pop songs about these things, even something like Antihero. Um, so we're gonna explore some of that with health and well-being. Um, and then we'll talk to, I'm hoping in the course, the other thing I would just highlight is this like Swiftonomics. Like I, I think I'm quite curious to see what Vancouver's um, social and economic impact will be from Taylor Swift. I think there's a lot of opportunities there for municipalities and the city to really capitalize on, on promoting Taylor Swift um, as a marketable, um, you know, component of the city for the few, uh, or like the week or so before she comes in December, 2024. So, yeah. Great. So maybe the last thing I'd like love to hear you talk about is this resistance, right? So, and it's whether it's trivialized or whether it's simply, why do we have so much importance on a celebrity? And I think you've spoken to that an awful mm -hmm. lot about why, but I wonder if you, you know, speak to that. How do we understand that? 
Yeah, the resistance. Um, I think it's <laughs> sometimes just good old like fashion misogyny, like a powerful woman. Um, because I've heard comments like, you know, well, she has ghostwriters or, oh, she, you know, like Kanye made her, there's a lot of resistance, um, to, you know, Kanye made her famous and he's even said that himself. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, like we saw this summer, right. With a trifecta of female kind of, um, economic juggernauts with Beyonce's Renaissance tour, which was also phenomenal. We saw the Barbie movie and we had kind of the heiress tour just reinvigorating the economy and basically enter like women entertainers and entertainment targeting women, like holding up the economy. So I don't think like if, if people are taking up space that was traditionally taken up by different parts of the <laughs> different parts of the, of demographics, like, I think people, there will be some resistance to that. Um, I think people still trivialize women's feelings. Like again, Taylor Swift does not discriminate on who can relate to her music, but she is often writing from the female experience. So like that's, I guess the takeaway is people will resist because they don't see it as valid. Um, and that's, that's both the, the critique or the resistance and it's her strength. I think that people feel heard, um, people feel validated. People feel like, Oh, there's someone out there who, um, who can relate to me. And also like the like COVID, I think I've seen some interesting economic statistics about how she had regularly toured about every two or three years. And COVID kind of had this backlog of like tour experiences that, that left people wanting more. But I think people had time to kind of dive into her music and, and she released two albums almost right back to back. And I was just talking to my friend yesterday about that, actually, like, we're like, Oh, we don't really feel like we know the evermore, her, her ninth album as well, because we, she had just released folklore two months before. And so just that giving us an indie, like feelings driven, very more, much more mellow album during that time. Like she, she also somehow can kind of just read what culture she, she both shapes what culture is and, and can read what culture does. And I think, yeah, that, I guess I kind of got sidetracked there, but with respect to resistance, I think it really comes down to a lot of just the, the patriarchy and, um, resisting women having those top kind of roles and yeah. So that would probably be what I would end with. <laughs> well, it's great. And I actually love what you said about, you know, the shaping culture and also just reading culture mm -hmm. and just being attentive. And I think your example of what she released during COVID is such a great example of that. Well, it's great. It's been so much fun just to listen to you talk and, and, and with such insight. And I think it, um, we've certainly seen other universities offering courses. It's, it's such an interesting sort of topic, if you will, because it's interdisciplinary mm -hmm. as you talked about it as yeah. well. So, yeah. I, I look forward to the course. Hopefully it'll come to fruition. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Martha. Our knowledge mobilization team includes Jeff Mydro birch Kristen Bentz, Andrea Morehouse, Frankie Fowl, Mara Penner, Sharon Strauss, and Emma Holmes. Our theme music is by Chris Micah. I'm Dr. Martha Dow. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on The Chassis Cast. The Jazzy Cast is a production of the Community Health and Social Innovation Hub at the University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, British Columbia.